Welcome to Tech Whisperers, the podcast that takes you inside the playbook of the world's best digital leaders. This is a show for digital and business leaders who are passionate about learning from the industry shapers and market makers. Join your host, Dan Roberts, as he unpacks the unique stories, leadership philosophies, and answer the call moments that define and differentiate the best leaders of our day. Our goal is to help you gain an edge and move you beyond your comfort zone so that you are driving more impact and value for your team, your company, and your career. Let's get into the show and hear from another amazing tech whisperer. Welcome back, everybody. My guest today is someone I refer to as the CIO's CIO. She is highly regarded by her industry peers for her courageous transparency and willingness to say what everyone is thinking. She is the CIO and SVP of Nutanix and also a board member of Qualsys as well as SATA. Formerly, she worked for great companies such as GoPro, Robert Half, and Yahoo. I, of course, am talking about the always amazing Wendy Pfeiffer. Wendy, let's just jump right into the deep end of the pool. The role of the CIO is not for the faint of heart. These jobs have never been more demanding, expectations have never been higher, and everyone is watching your every move. Yet in spite of all that, you recently shared with me that these are fascinating times and you are excited to be alive now. So Wendy, jump in and why the optimism? Well, Dan, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. And I should start by saying uh, that you are, you have the same name as my son, Daniel. And so I'm, I'm struggling because I have a little bit of maternal feelings, even as we're speaking, but I am delighted to be here today. I think this is the most exciting time to be alive. And that that starts from this excitement I have being a parent and seeing my my kids, my teens. They are the teens who came through the pandemic. They came through some difficult times and and they came through differently. They are now operating on multiple levels as users of technology, as purpose-built people who are engaging in society directly with a focus on making the future better. They're also aware of what it takes to maintain their humanity, to take care of themselves, to look out for others in their community. And so we have this group of digital native people who are out on the other side of a difficult time, connected to other human beings in in new ways, but also using technology specifically to move forward, to make the world a better place. And these people are the ones who will be entering the workforce next. And I want us to be ready for them in the workforce. I want our technologies and our tools and our processes, and even the way that we view the people who work for our companies as individuals, as people with personalities and unique needs. I want us to be ready for that blend of consumer tech and enterprise tech. And so I find this to be an exciting time as we move forward out of some difficult times and we ready these changed people, this new generation for the workforce and for a productive and hopefully also happy and balanced future. 
Yeah, I love your focus on the humanity and the opti- the reason for optimism. We all need that these days. And go Daniel. I, I, I like him already. So uh, <laughs> he's going to go do great things. And having fun, some fun with names, I, I asked you earlier about the relationship with Michelle Pfeiffer. And you actually have a great, she, she actually took the name from your family. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So my middle name, Michelle, is special to me. And I, I always uh, use the M when I when I use my professional name, Wendy M. Pfeiffer. The, the name Michelle was actually passed down through the females in my family. And so started with my grandma, then my mom, then me, and I've passed it on to my daughter, Holly, as well. And so we sort of use this as a signal, a way to connect with the generations of females in our family and to acknowledge that although we don't keep our family names, our last names, we're still connected to this great chorus of women who are encouraging us and and you know leading us on and and then of course that all happened before Michelle Pfeiffer became the powerhouse uh, movie star that she is but early in our marriage my husband and I were living in in LA while he was building his music career and uh from time to time I may have used my middle name to to make the occasional restaurant uh reservation <laughs> I, I think we may have gotten this very cool table in the center of Wolf gang pucks back when they were just a new thing because I, you know, made the reservation under W. Michelle Pfeiffer. But these days it's Wendy M. Pfeiffer and, and I can't trade on that anymore. Well, I heard rumor that Michelle Pfeiffer actually goes by your name now when she's making reservations. So because you've got the big fame now, it's it's good stuff. It's good stuff. <laughs> That's awesome. So we like to pull in some mystery questioners. It's a fun part of the program, but also it's a way for us to unpack the superpowers of our guests. And so we have two people that are from your your circles. And I want to play the first one now. Tell us who this is once you hear it and then have some fun with the question, Wendy. Over the years, you have been able to build and lead many highly successful IT organizations, often with very lean budgets and resources. With the current potential of a recession looming in everyone's mind and companies reducing overhead costs, what wisdom would you pass along to new leaders on how to still create high-achieving teams despite their constricted budgets? Oh my goodness. So that is Crystal Chaboya. She's my chief of staff currently, but I have worked with Crystal for close to 20 years now at various companies, starting at Yahoo and GoPro and Robert Half and today at Nutanix. I will tell you that in life, if you're blessed to find someone who's a balance to you, you'll go far. You know, I, I am, I, I imagine things, I have these great ideas. And then Crystal brings it back down to reality and says, well, how are we going to pay for that? Or that you've just made this leap of faith. And in the middle is a lot of hard work. Who's going to do that work? And, and so she helps me to stay grounded and balanced. And at the same time, I like to think that together we figure out how to execute. I'm so happy that you were able to speak with her. And I'm going to, she's going to be in trouble after this. Uh, <laughs> and she thought so. Yeah. 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 I, I think, well, first of all, I've reached a certain age that I've lived through a few recessions. I've lived through a few times when markets were booming and industries were booming. And one of the things that I've learned is that it's, 
it's not about the technology. It's not about the funding. It's not about the product, but it's about the people and their, their ability to turn that product into something that's useful, something that's maybe different or innovative. And down through the years, I have struggled with two things. One is ensuring that I never, if possible, have to downsize my team, that I can run a very, very lean team so that when times are good, we have the ability to scale, but when times are poor, that we have the ability to sustain. And one of the key secrets that I've found, which is not a secret, but I think we're pretty exemplary in terms of how we implement it, is automation. So what automation, you know, automation is sometimes this evil thing in in tech, right? It replaces tech worker jobs. But in our case, it's a game changer. I went through this process at Nutanix of training the entire team to use a low-code, no-code tool. And what this tool allows us to do is it allows us to take every member of the team, whether they're a project manager or a, a person on the help desk or a senior network engineer, take those people and allow them to express their operational expertise, their skills in operating the technology or or doing their job, to express that in code, to to express that in machine-readable format. And so what we do in my teams is we're constantly going through this repeating cycle of documenting our processes and our unique ways of working, then using these low-code, no-code tools to turn those into automation or machine-readable format. In other words, we express them in these automated runbooks, and then we run these automations and we refine them and we make sure that they function properly. And so over time, if you have a, a, a repeating pattern of doing that, eventually you have a body of knowledge of operational expertise that can be performed fully autonomously. That then allows the team members to turn their expertise on two things. One, helping people who need human beings to help them, as well as imagining what's next. And so over time, when times are lean, All of those processes and tools and things that take up the bulk of time in IT are now handled autonomously. In my organization, 89% of all of our work is handled fully autonomously, allowing the more creative work, the more human-focused work to be handled by the people in the team. And the people in the team enjoy that kind of work. They enjoy connecting with their peers. They enjoy trying new ideas, using new technologies, inventing new things. And so ultimately, at Nutanix, for example, my team, you know, I've been there for six years in January, my team has remained intact. I have almost no attrition. We also haven't had to grow the team as the company has grown. The team members are interested, motivated, love the work that they're doing. And internally, our NPS is really, really high. So the employees who benefit from our services love that 
personal attention, the way that we're sort of pushing the envelope with technology and tooling. And at the same time that we're using automation to sort of take care of the mundane. And so I think that can be a key for anyone. You can start small, but the more that you are dedicated to turning that operational expertise into things that the machine can execute on, that allows you to scale with that same set of people and preserve their unique operational expertise. I love that. And Chris's question was right on, you know, that with the times, a lot of our leaders today have not led during a downturn, during a recession. And I love how you set your team up for success in good and bad times. And I also appreciate, and one of the reasons I was excited to have you on the show is your focus on the human side of the equation. We coined the term in 1984, developing the human side of technology. And we didn't know there were darn humans back then in technology, right? And now fast forward and you're, this is what you talk about. And we have a second mystery question I'd like to have you listen in on that I think will shine the light even more on your philosophy around, around the people side of the equation. So let's listen in. Wendy, we've worked together now in three different companies over just about 20 years, I would say. And one thing I've observed about you is that you always find time, no matter the size of your organization, could be over 100 people, and yet you still find time to have a one-on-one meeting with everyone in the organization, whether they're an individual contributor, intern, starting their career, or they're your direct reports, you still find the time. And I just wonder, how do you find the time for that amidst all of the competing priorities you must have on your calendar in any given week? That is Sebastian Goodwin. He is our chief information security officer at Nutanix. And he's right. We have worked together at multiple companies down through the years. And I feel lucky to have worked with him and benefited from his expertise in so many places He is someone I met when he was young, when he was, you know, really new in in his career. But back then, he was an individual contributor, a, a really smart kid, if you will, and, you know, very ambitious, very ambitious guy and very driven. And at the same time, one of these people who would do anything to help a colleague along to support someone else, whether that be someone in his family or circle of friends, et cetera. And so I, I had this instant connection to his mindset and and he had this ambition, but the ambition was tempered with, with an ethical point of view. I look at him now, you know, I, I would say that he's one of those people who helped me to realize that spending time with people especially when you have something they need, is is the most valuable thing. Probably you can hear from my voice the pleasure I get in speaking about him and speaking about his career, but also him as a person. That's what ultimately is meaningful to me. I think back on all the big projects I worked on and all the big companies I worked for. And, you know, honestly, I can't remember exactly the details of that data center refresh or that upgrade to SAP or, you know, whatever the, you know, there's always a project, Project Rome, because Rome wasn't built in the day and this one's going to be hard, whatever it is, you know, there's always one of those. I don't remember the details of those things, but these people, I do remember them and I, and I do celebrate their victories and, and they're, 
treasures for me. So when it comes to my own team, yeah, I've had this tradition kind of forever and I've had some pretty huge teams, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people, but I try to go through a cycle of having skip level one-on-ones with every single person in my team and I just go through this never-ending cycle. So I start at the beginning and I meet with every single person. And then I start at the beginning, I meet with every single person. And then when I get to the end, I, I repeat the cycle again. And, you know, this takes some time, right? That, you know, my amazing assistant will book a half hour, but every conversation takes an hour. We'll share, you know, baby photos and wedding photos, and we'll talk about things that they're thinking about. They'll show me things they're building. They'll tell me things I'm doing wrong. They'll tell me things I'm doing right. They'll share their lives with me. This is really important to me because it has to do with my fundamental belief in the nature of leadership. As a leader, I actually have a customer and the customer is the team that I'm leading, the people that I'm leading in the team. What a waste it would be if I were creating this this product, my leadership, and I were delivering that leadership in a way that was not a good fit for the team. I think most of us have worked for a lousy boss. And what do they say that people join companies and people leave companies because of their boss? And Mm. so it's possible that I may not be the most sensitive person, that I may not, frankly, at this stage, even remember what it's like to be an individual contributor way down in an organization, the sort of the recipient of these policies that don't make sense or these tools that aren't quite fit to purpose. And so I just try to educate myself. I just try to listen and figure out who are these people, my my customers, my employees, and what do they need? What's the appropriate interaction design for my leadership? Uh, should I write? Should I speak? Should we meet in person? Should I be there at the at the same time that that they're there? How mature are they? Do they need some detailed instruction from me? Probably not, you know, or do they need me to to step back and see how they work and and respond? And so I'm constantly learning and and I feel like as long as you have that interest in the people that you serve and you're willing to understand what they need and how to show up and the meaning in the work that you're doing, then your leadership will be fit to purpose. And for me, that's my goal. My goal is that my leadership is fit to purpose. At some point, I'll reach a stage where where that's a little less compelling But for now, these people are fascinating to me and they're compelling to me. And if 10 years from now, I can be speaking about another group of leaders like Sebastian and Crystal, who have grown up through an organization that I had some part in shaping, then that's my victory. Those are my accomplishments more so than anything else. Yeah, those are huge wins. And and the fact that you've been through the last few years in this amazing talent market where there's been huge movement, migrations. Uh, you're, in, you're in the capital of the tech world. You're a tech company. I mean, the proof's in the pudding. Your engagement scores are off the charts. And, you know, I think kind of an extension of that is part of your transparency. You know, you're, you're just out there. You open the kimono on just about every topic, stuff that people would never talk about usually. And I read an article you wrote, you posted on LinkedIn 
about quiet quitting. And I remember where the restaurant in Seattle, I was sitting in when I sat and read it. In fact, I read it end to end because it was so interesting. It was so compelling. And in it, you share, you said the words, I can't even quiet quit correctly. I was like, she said this. And then you went on to say, before the pandemic, I was pretty unhappy with work, if I'm being honest. You knew people were going to be reading this, like your boss and your peers. And so just talk about that. Why do you why do you put yourself out there like that? Well, first of all, I literally got a, a call from my HR business partner after he read it. You know, he had sort of two sides to his response. One side was, oh, you know, darn you, you got you got me emotional. And um you're not quitting though, right? You're staying, right? <laughs> uh, and I said, did you read to the end? Because like at the end, you can see I'm staying, you know? And I will, I will say that I have been having so many conversations with folks on that topic and, and folks inside of my company, right? I had, I had been chatting with people I'd worked with for years who were frankly struggling like I was to figure out what does it all mean now? You know, how do we move forward in these new times? And most of what I was hearing from folks is that they were uncomfortable kind of with everything like I was. I mean, once once your eyes are opened and you've sort of looked back at your at your life previously, you know, you see the things that that are that were good, but you also see the things that were flawed. And so nobody wants to go back to high school, you know, nobody wants to go back to those previous times. And, and so imagine that feeling that, that I think most of us were feeling of, look, I don't want to go back, but I'm not comfortable with the present, really. It's, it's strange for me. And the future seems pretty uncertain. And, and, and for me, as someone who had established my career already, I just don't, my questioning was around First of all, do I want to kind of work that hard again to establish mm. myself in the new realm? And then secondly, even if I want to, can I do it? Uh, you know, a lot of a lot of it feels foreign to me and 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 uncomfortable all over again. And so I was wrestling with that, but I was also having these individual conversations with folks who were wrestling with it. And, and when I, you know, I describe in the article, this epiphany I had, it really was, it was an epiphany I had. And I thought, you know, I bet this would be useful to somebody. And so I should write about it. But if I write about it in one of those sort of, you know, virtuous parsimonious ways, people like me who need to hear it will be turned off, right? That it mm. One more carefully curated thing that's written by somebody who I can't relate to. And so I wanted it to be relatable and I wanted it to be useful. Now, as to why I write generally, so I've been I've been writing blogs for ever and ever and ever. I started with a series called Views from Metropolis, which if you search for it on um, WordPress, you can find it. I I very much have a I guess you could say I am mostly fueled by cynicism, anxiety, anger, the negative emotions. And I I find that those things build up in me on various topics, and I have to find some way to work them out. And as I work them out, I find also that I that I kind of see humor in things. 
And so I then think that there's something kind of beautiful about the balanced output of that whole process of, you know, starting with um, some uncomfortable situation, going through the the anger and the frustration and the anxiety and the cynicism, and then finding a path forward and and sort of having that self-deprecating humor or that that sort of sarcastic feeling of we've worked this out, but like. We all know that, you know, there's some flaws still. And so I, I started trying to find a way to use words to construct that thought process. And there's an actual structure, a symmetry to how I like to write. I like to find a key phrase that I start with in the beginning and then repeat it at the end. I like to have little humorous references that I uh, continue to to just have a phrase here or there that's an ongoing theme that means more to me. So, for example, in in the piece you're speaking about, I talked about people who had moved out of the Bay Area to Idaho or Austin, and I repeat that, you know, and I say, oh, Austin or Idaho, Idaho or Austin, and I'm interchanging those two because for me, they're both really similar. There are these super popular places that people sort of fled to from the Bay Area. And, you know, they might as well be sort of anywhere, but also they are now places that are being uh, overrun with Californians and changed by, by the Californians who are moving there. And I think that's both interesting, but also a shame for those places. And so I'm embodying all of that. I'm thinking all of those things as I repeat that little phrase throughout. And I feel like people who are experiencing that particular transformation will connect to that. I don't know if they will, but I hope they will. I hope they'll see the humor in that because it's it's a little bit about, you know, whether it's Idaho or Austin, the grass is probably not greener there. So I enjoy that. I enjoy the construction of the things that I write. I've had an aspiration since I was a small child to write a a novel. I think what has kept me from writing the novel, besides having time and a publisher and an agent and those things, is the fact that I do like this kind of construction in writing. And I think it would be very, very difficult to do that over, over the span of an entire large novel. That would be crazy. I'll add, though, that my teenage daughter is a published author. She's published two books that are fiction. They are well-received. She's selling copies of those. She wrote the first one and published it when she was 13. And her name is Holly M. Pfeiffer. And so, you know, maybe this is one of those things where I can live vicariously through her. Amazing. Great job, Holly. That's uh, that's impressive. And I love your writing style and your the process. and. Wendy, you talked about the future, and I, I, I want to take us out to 2033. It's 10 years out, and what's the nature of work look like? How do we work then? If you kind of, what, what my friend Bob Johansson, the futurist, says, he calls it future back thinking. So let's go future back. What's the, what do you see out there? 
Oh, you know, I, I'll tell you what, every year I write these predictions for the coming year. And I, I uh, someone just challenged me. I went, I, I went back and I looked at all of the ones that I've written. And, and I can tell you that they were 100% wrong. Just every single prediction through the annals of time were 100% wrong. So I answer this question with, with great humor. But I, I do think this. I think that when it comes to my sport, which is IT, which is taking technology and applying it in service of business, I do think that how technology is used in support of business and in support of the people who work will continue the journey that it's on. And the journey that it's on is as the technology becomes more capable, as we have more machine learning and AI and and more of the workload handled by the machine itself, we have the ability to personalize and refine the use of technology for business and for the people who work. And so I think that increasingly technology will become more personalized, more instrumented to the individuals doing the work. And because of that, I think that work itself will also become more personalized and more individualized. And there's one area that I think can make a huge difference in the future, and that is around the nature of jobs and organizational structures, especially in the technology space. You know, in the technology space, we are notoriously, you know, skewed towards young male Caucasian workers, right? We, we, we know that, you know, many technology companies' ranks are, are filled with young males who are focused on technology and tooling. And we, we're always on this quest, you know, to uh, support diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging in our tech companies, particularly. And, and we've got all kinds of, you know, rules and quotas and so on. But one of the things I've learned in all of my individual conversations with technology workers is that, you know, stereotypically, not everyone, but stereotypically, a lot of women, a lot of younger people and older people, a lot of people from diverse backgrounds and and diverse cultures and so on, they think differently about the nature of technical work than the way that we set up the nature of technical work 30 years ago. At the moment, technical jobs are very single-threaded. So if you're a software developer, your job is to write code, and you're given your assignment to write code, and you sit in your cubicle or in your home office in front of your computer, and you write code all day long. Now, you know, stereotypically, often men do lots of very serial thinking, right? They they focus on one thing at a time, they set a goal, they move forward and they achieve that goal. A lot of times, stereotypically, women are, you know, multi-threaded. They do parallel thinking. They might want to work on not only a technical task, but also a marketing task and also a visual task and so on. And so if you think about the job of a software developer, when a woman sort of steps into that role, she is not challenged across all of those dimensions. Again, I'm speaking stereotypically, but still she's not challenged across all of her dimensions. And so we find that it's not the rate of women in STEM programs. It's not the rate of women in university technical programs. 
The real challenge we have is though, is that although we're hiring roughly 50-50 at the starting point in tech, a lot of women move into other careers, they move out of tech and into other careers. And they're doing that, I think, my theory, because the jobs are one-dimensional. Going forward, if we allow this mass personalization that, you know, in the 80s we thought would be possible with technology and now is actually uh, possible with technology, then in theory, people also will be able to design their jobs and the work that they do. And we see that happening now, the beginnings of this gig economy, where um, people can choose projects that appeal to them. And we find that a disproportionate number of technology gig workers are female, and they are taking on a mix of tasks. They're taking on visually creative tasks, writing tasks, coding tasks, building and configuring tasks. If we were to create job descriptions that allowed for that range, then I think we would find we have a much more diverse workforce. We wouldn't skew towards that, right? If, if we also find someone who's who's a you know a beast at focusing on that single task and and making progress in writing code or or building networks, um, we have jobs for those folks too. But having that flexibility would be transformational. I, I've learned from some of the newer economies in the world, places like Romania and Serbia that have come out of the other side of um, civil wars and revolutions, they skew towards a very young technical workforce. And I can tell you that in uh, Romania, there's a, there's a couple of locations there that are sort of the Silicon Valley of, of uh, Romania. And all of the tech workers are gig workers. They have the right to sign on to any task with any technology company they want to. They can work for multiple tech companies. They can work for multiple companies at the same time. And, and they can pick and choose the projects, the technologies, the tools that they want to use. And that is a very, very rich and vibrant center of innovation. It's where, for example, EA, the game maker, has its you know, development centers and, and so on. So I think that's the future that we that we connect to people's unique skills and mix of skills that we adjust our job descriptions. We become more gig-like in terms of the skills and the tooling. And then as well that we make use of the rich personalization that's available in consumer technologies. And you know, there'll be bumps along the way, but I feel like that's the direction that we're headed in. And if we do that right, if we use technology in support of the sort of amazing multifaceted creatures that we are, then I think that maybe we'll turn the page again and start to see that next revolution of technology in support of civilization that we were kind of hoping for back in the early days of the internet. Maybe maybe we're starting to see that shift now. Very exciting vision. And I bet you're going to be pretty darn close with those visions you have. And gosh, Wendy, 10 years out, you and I are going to be like 49 then. So this, this stuff matters to us, right? So it's, I'm paying attention here. You've shared some of your great Wendy-isms already, just naturally, intuitively. I study these. I, I learn from these. I like to share these. I want to unpack a couple more. You know, you've got one around showing up, about continuing to show up. Can you talk about that one? So it's one of my favorite sayings that my, my mom used to say it all the time, which is, if you just keep showing up every day, eventually they have to give it to you. And 
I was one of these people who would just have my head turned by the next latest thing. And uh, my mom was trying to teach me the value of perseverance and stick-to-itiveness, as uh, she used to say. But, you know, down through the years, I have found that has been the most important quality necessary for my own success was continuing to show up. So show up every day for your job, for your exercise routine, for your relationships, show up every day, no matter how you feel. If you're feeling happy and content and you think you're better than anyone needs you to be, you still need to show up. I I remember um, down through the years being informed by the careers of some great athletes. And one of those is uh, Randy Moss, great receiver for the San Francisco 49ers football team. And he was one of the greatest of all time. But what I learned is his work ethic. Every single day, including Sundays, he would go out and he would practice the fundamentals on the field. Even though he was the greatest, even though he was the best, he would practice the fundamentals uh, again and again. In my own life, I took eight and a half years to get my bachelor's degree. And there were lots of contributing reasons for that. One of which was, you know, I discovered boys in college. I kind of ran out of money and had to have a lot of different jobs. I chose as as my first major astrophysics because I was super interested in it, but just didn't have the math skills. So it took me a long time to get my bachelor's degree. And there were a lot of times where I just wanted to give up, but I kept showing up even after I would get an F in a class. Even after I would have some lecture by the by the professor about how, you know, I had the ability, but I just wasn't trying hard or focusing. And I also would show up even when I was having a great victory, even when I was getting, you know, straight A's in the class. And it was only by doing that that I was able to finally finish and have some proof that I had done that in the form of a degree. There have been times at work and in particularly as a leader as a leader, you know, you're you're under a spotlight and um, there's some goodness in that, right? I, I've learned that uh, the only way for me to survive that is to be open and to be transparent. But being open and being transparent means that sometimes you will make big mistakes. And when you make those big mistakes, it's not just, you know, you and a handful of people knowing that. It's, it's a lot of people see you making mm. a big mistake. And it's humiliating. It's embarrassing. It's uncomfortable. And even after that, you got to show up the next day and and you got to show up in all your uncomfortableness and say, wow, I'm so sorry. I misjudged this or that. And, you know, we, we had to do something horrible, like maybe lay people off or we, we didn't get that contract or, you know, we launched something that was a disaster and now no one respects our team or whatever it is. So I love that perspective on continuing to show up, perseverance. I think it's going to be even more of a differentiator going forward. And as I tell my, my team, most days are going to be messy in this world, you know, and I think for those who just continue to persevere, like you said, Good things are going to happen. You're going to have that result. And I'm going to ask you probably the hardest question of the, the podcast, okay? And it's only hard because you do so much in the communities that you work and live and helping so many different groups. And so, as you know, we have our Tech for Good program. And we are so excited, once again, in 2023, to be donating $125,000 in scholarships 
to our Tech LX Leadership Program, nine-month cohort-based program. And so I want to put you on the spot and see if you could single out one of those organizations that you're affiliated with and uh, who you'd like, you'd like to gift a seat in that program to. Oh, Dan, I'm I'm so grateful uh, that you're making this opportunity available. You know, an organization comes to mind that reflects a lot of the values that that I care about, and also um, helps a couple of populations that I that I care a lot about. And so, there's this great organization that I would love to have as the recipient of this. It's called N Power. That's a capital N and then a capital P Power. And what this organization does is it has a regular study and scholarship program, both for vets who are who have you know recently left uh, military service, as well as for young people who are um, from underserved communities and just entering the workforce. And what it does is it provides mentoring, career mentoring, as well as training and technical education for cohorts of these students and then helps them with placement in technology careers. And this organization has just been dedicated to uh, these communities for for many, many years. I've had the privilege of uh, being associated with them for many years and would love it if we could give the scholarship to them. That just warms my heart. Know the organization very well. Your colleague, Ted Colbert, was on the show last year, Ted from Boeing, and also gifted it to NPower, and they were very appreciative. They made good use of it. So, yeah, thank you for that. And as a, as a dad of a veteran, I really I share your passion for them as well. Putting a big bow on our time together, Wendy, you know, just your company and the things that you're doing, how you're serving the technology space is fascinating to me. And your CEO did some recent research on some of his announcements, Rajiv. Ramaswamy, right? And he shared two things that caught my attention recently. One is that your company's net promoter score exceeds 90%, continues to be, which is, that's just staggering. And somewhere in the 30 to 50 is pretty staggering. Secondly, you have a new chief marketing officer, your peer, Mandy Dalawal. And uh, sounds like she's doing an incredible job just changing the narrative or getting the narrative of the company to catch up to the reality of what's going on in the market. Why are these things important to you, your company, and CIOs in general? I'm so glad you asked that question. It's sometimes we work hard to sort of make the things that we say be a bit of an ad for the companies that we work for. And in this case, uh, this is not that. You know, I was just talking about my my view of the future, which is that the, the future is, is this multifaceted thing and that we need to have this personalized use of technology. The fact is that as we look to the future, the future, I believe, is hybrid. It's a mix of things coming out of the pandemic. Again, we didn't just sort of put the genie back in the bottle and, and go back to all on-premises work. We didn't just go back to all physical meetings and, and you know, even school education is still hybrid and virtual. And, you know, look at us, we're having a, a conversation, you know, over some virtual technology. And so, as we think about the mixed mode of the future in you know, hybrid cars, hybrid everything, look, we need technologies that also recognize that um, the future is mixed mode. 
And what's terrific about Nutanix, and look, one of the reasons that I choose to work for a company is because I love the technology. You know, I, I chose to work for GoPro because I loved the action cameras and, and it was fun being their CIO. Same with Nutanix. Nutanix has an operating system that was purpose-built to run everywhere. So it was built with this theory that we're not going to be able to predict what hardware people are using in physical data centers. Is it Dell, Lenovo, HPE, IBM? We don't know. We're not going to be able to picture what cloud people are using. Will it be AWS or GCP or Azure or something else? We don't know. And so we want to create a technology that is built to run everywhere and can be used in hybrid mode. That was a vision 11, 12 years ago for the company. Now, people are actually operating in this manner. And so as a company, we have this technology, but we were sort of talking about it differently. And then, you know, times changed and we got our this amazing new CEO. And then we got this amazing new chief marketing officer, uh, Mandy. And Mandy started speaking this message and saying, look, it's a multi-cloud future. It's a multi-mode future. And, you know, we're ready for that. And so I think the future is really about having enabling technologies, technologies that enable the things that people want to do, not constraining technologies. You know, this notion in the old days of a platform where you commit to that platform and then as long as you're operating inside those boundaries, it's okay. Well, guess what? The ecosystem is larger than that. It's more complex and multi-layered than that. And so if you want some tooling that will work everywhere, that will allow you to consume uh, infrastructure that uses the lowest amount of electricity, for example, because there's you know, some, some pressure on, on fuel and, and energy due to a, a war, or you're wanting to consume technology from a new, a new virtualization technology because the old company that you used to work with was bought out by somebody. So in those moments where you need to make a change and a pivot, having a foundation, a, a, an operating system, and therefore an operating model that's flexible, that was intended for that, I mean, that's essential. That's essential to the future. And and frankly, it's delightful. You know, my day job is I'm a CIO and I use these kinds of technologies, my own company technologies and others that are built this way, open source and so on. I use those things to, to run IT for a, you know, one and a half billion dollar publicly traded company. So that's what helps us to operate and hopefully it will help my colleagues to operate in the future, sort of having that, that general theory of hybrid and openness and so on. I appreciate that perspective on the company and the industry, you know, the state of the industry. And, you know, we're going to continue our dialogue through a blog post that's going to publish next week. So that's going to be really cool. And what we're going to do, Wendy, with your permission, is you just published a five-part video series titled Perspectives on IT's Role in Enabling Hybrid Work. So we're going to unpack a bunch of that through the blog post coming out next week. And then I want to really point people towards that too, because it's a really fantastic series. But for today, for now, Wendy, I can't thank you enough. This was so fun. I was looking forward to this. And you're going to be the commencement speaker at NPower's graduation. You've got a great things with your family, your company. So thanks so much for being here. 
Thank you, Dan, for having me. It was truly, truly an honor. Thank you. Developing a robust pipeline of future-ready IT leaders who know how to show up and engage differently is paramount to success today. If you would like to learn more about the Tech LX Leadership Development Program that Dan talks about in the podcast, we invite you to visit techwhisperers.net. Equip your workforce with a new mindset and skill set needed to maximize impact, increase engagement, and build a world-class talent magnet brand. You've been listening to Tech Whispers, inside the playbook of the best digital leaders, a Woolette and Associates podcast. Keep connected with us by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you like what you've heard, please rate the show as this helps us connect the world's best digital leaders with those who aspire to learn, grow, and thrive in this amazing profession. Thanks for listening. Until next time.